<clears throat> contending with a little sore throat this morning, so bear with me. I uh, want to wish well to our, um, our pianist and, and worship associate, Julie, who's gone this week. We, uh, we always miss her when she's gone. Uh, it becomes a little bit of everybody, and so thanks to the team for being very flexible this week, and uh, for everybody for, you know, worshiping along with us with whatever teams we have or don't have. Um, and if you missed her this week, make sure you tell her next week when she comes back that she's been dearly missed. She always appreciates hearing that. Uh, what is your favorite movie origin story? You can shout it out if you want. It's not a rhetorical question. Anybody have a favorite movie origin story? For me, personally, it's Iron Man. I love Iron Man. And one of the things you look at, you know, the Marvel franchise is a unique kind of thing. There's, there's millions of movies that have origin stories of characters. But one of the reasons I think that the Marvel universe has done so well financially, has been so successful, and so many people are enthralled, is because really it's a, it's a collection of origin stories, right? Every single movie originally that came to be was what? Explained how the person got there. We didn't get to Iron Man 1 and the, the credits open and there he is just flying around and saving the world. Because if that happened, we probably wouldn't care all that much about him. Right? It just exists out of, out of thin air. But every superhero, every movie like that has an origin story. We know how Superman originated from another planet. We know how Batman originated. We know how Iron Man originated, stuck in the desert and fought his way out, and he's an engineer brain. Part of why I love Iron Man is because I think it's the only Marvel superhero that's actually possible, right? Like, there's no, I, I hate to tell you, especially ladies, Thor is not real. <laughs> he doesn't exist, right? I know, I know, I know, I know. I just broke hearts everywhere. But Iron Man could happen, right? Like, we have Elon Musk. I give him 10 years, and we'll probably have him flying around just in real life, right? It's a possible thing. We all love a good origin story because it invests us in the character. We want to know where they come from. What are the challenges in their life that they are facing that they have to wrestle with? And inevitably, any good superhero movie has that kind of facet to it, right? There's something about their upbringing, something about their past that, that kind of holds them back, that they have to overcome, and we just are rooting for them to do that because we all have things in our past that we know that we should be overcoming. And so there's this investment psychologically that happens when we learn about the origin story of someone. It's actually true in real life as well, right? One of the most interesting conversations topics that I've had with people as I've been your pastor is kind of tell me tell me your origin story whether that's how did you come to be period or you know how'd you come to be at this church it's fascinating someday we should put a book together where everyone just shares how they came here like what it is that brought them here of all places right there's dozens of churches walking distance why are we here Right? And people have all kinds of stories. You know, 30 years ago, so-and-so greeted me and then invited me to their house. We all have origin stories. They tell us where we come from, why we come from. They tell us what, what we are, who we are deep inside. And they help us as we move forward trying to be who we're supposed to be. For the next nine weeks, we're going to survey the book of Genesis. And Genesis is really the origin story of us. Right? It's how did stuff come to be? In Hebrew, the, the, the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible is called Bereshith, which just means beginning. Right? And then the Greeks had the word genesis, and the Latin is the same word, and then we've kept the same word. So if you didn't think you knew any Greek, congratulations. You learned Greek today. You already knew. Genesis is beginning. We actually, it's one of the few 
original language words that we use today. Like if I tell you that it's the genesis of something, that's, that's a real word that we use in that way to describe things, right? Or a car that somebody made for a while and then didn't make anymore. I think it was Hyundai made a genesis once, right? Genesis is the beginning. It's the origin story and it's our origin story. And if we want to know how and why it's our origin story, all we have to do is go to where and when and by whom it was written. Right? Most of the consensus out there is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. And the belief is that he wrote Genesis around the 15th century BC, which would have lined up right around the time that the Israelites were made free from Egypt and began to wander in the desert before they were able to enter the Promised Land. So he's writing the book of Genesis during a time where these Israelites are coming out of Egypt and trying to figure out who they are. Right? We have to understand, they didn't have a God-given identity beforehand. Right? And, and another thing, the people, the Israelites, before they were released from Egyptian slavery, they were stuck in the system of Egyptian gods that is very polytheistic, multiple gods, right? Egypts have gods, Egyptians have gods for everything. You know, from Ra all the way down and so forth. We see in historical Egypt that there's just gods everywhere. And so in this context, they have this, that's all they really know. And they come out, and so they need to know, well, this, this God, who is he? Who are, who are we? Why did he pick us? Why did he pull us out into freedom and into something new that he's calling us to? And, and what does it all mean? And so the book of Genesis was Moses's kind of almost download through God, where God reveals the exact nature of how creation came to be. Right? For them, it was their origin story. You don't have an identity? You wonder who you are? You think you're just a random slave in Egypt? No, no, no. Here, let me, let me tell you exactly who you are and where you, and by the way, everything else comes from. Right? That's, that's Genesis. And so we have to understand that Genesis is designed to answer life's most foundational question. How did we come to be here? And why did we come to be there? In some ways, the book of Genesis is really, really helpful, especially for new Christians who, who maybe they come to know Jesus, they hear the gospel, they accept him, and, and then they wonder, well, what does it all mean? What did I just sign up for, right? Maybe for some of us, we've been walking with Christ forever, but we, we've never really taken the time to understand, well, from, from a creation perspective, why, why are we here? What were we made for? How was the world made? Yeah, God made it, and he spoke, and all these good things. But over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this book. We're going to look at the various kind of big stories in it from creation to fall to things like Abraham and Noah and the flood and, and Jacob and Joseph. And we're going to survey the book to see how it leads ultimately to where Moses finds himself when we get to the Exodus. Right? So that we can understand how that book functioned for the Israelites and then from there understand how it functions for us. And today we're looking at creation. We're looking at Genesis 1, the first chapter, the beginning of everything. And in a moment, I'm going to not have you stand just today because it's really long, really, really long. And I want to read the entirety of it. 
And I really, I want you to, to not just to kind of read along with me, but I want you to absorb it. So whatever, I'm not going to be, you know, close your eyes. And if you want to close your eyes, great, you can do that if that helps you. But just absorb this, this first chapter of Genesis, maybe with, with fresh ears. And then understand one more thing before we start reading it. Sometimes in Scripture, we have to know the genre of what we're reading to understand some nuance. The genre of Genesis 1 is a Hebrew poem. It's not narrative. Right? We actually get a historical narrative account of creation in Genesis 2. I would encourage you to go home and, and read that today. It tells, it's, it's very factual. God created the world and this, and this is very ordered. But, but Hebrew poetry is meant to be expressive in a way that takes some license. And so you might actually read Genesis 1 and 2 and think they contradict. They don't because one is poetic. Right? There's other places in Scripture we see that. We talked about the book of Judges around this time last year. And right, we had Deborah's thing happen, and then she has Deborah's song where she recounts everything, and she uses metaphors that that's not literal. Right? She's singing. How many songs do you sing in the radio in the car that you're like, no, that's a metaphor. Right? I'm not actually going to go key that person's car because they cheated on me. Right? It's metaphorical for the anger that I have for them. Maybe, maybe you are going to key their car. We should talk. Right? But, but that's the thing to understand, that when you hear this, hear this text, it's poetic. And we see the poetry in it, and we'll talk about that after we're done. So this, I just want to encourage you to keep your eyes open, close your eyes, stay seated, and just hear the words of Genesis 1, 1 through 31. Let's so read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them let the lights or let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, 
and the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seeds, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And so every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's the word of the Lord. There's a, there's a kind of addendum when you get to chapter 2. There's that the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. We're not sure why they moved that into chapter 2. It's its own kind of thought in some way. But it's this, this, this finality of creation in seven days, one of them being a day of rest. So the creation narrative is probably one of the most well-known pieces of literature out there. Right? Most, most people recognize at least a part of it as they read it out loud. And like I said before, this is Hebrew poetry, and, and it can be lost in translation because sometimes when we go from Hebrew or Greek to English, we lose this poetic element, right? When you read it, I tried to keep the meter in a certain way, but you kind of go, is that poetry? I don't really know. But one of the ways that we understand and acknowledge and can recognize Hebrew poetry is when we look at the structure of the text. And we see in Genesis a few things that are really, really helpful to us that can tell us that it's Hebrew poetry. When you look at the creation narrative in the days, there's a perfect organization to the way that the days fall. There's six days of actual creating activity And what we see is the first three days are about what we think of as forming, and the second three days are what we think of as 
filling. And the, the second three correspond beautifully to the first three. And so when you look at day one, what is created? There's light. In the beginning was nothing. It was darkness. And God said, let there be light. Right? When we get to day four, one of the things we see is the fine-tuning, the filling, so to say, of, the, of that light. Right? And so what happens in, in day four? We see things like the moon and the sun, right? the two great lights, and then the stars are created. So the light kind of gets organized in a way so that we have this clear delineation of day and night. When we look at day two, he creates the expanse, like the ocean, clouds, and all those kinds of things, right? And he separates what he says, the two waters, which we think of as clouds and ocean, with this sky in between, this expanse. He creates this very rough sketch of how it looks, but then what happens in day five is those things get filled. And so we get birds, and we get fish, and we get sea creatures and air creatures all abounding, to fill what had been done in day two. And then day three is when dry land appears, right? and all the plants and vegetation and all that stuff is created, and then on day six is when the land is filled with all the living creatures, the ones that crawl and the ones that don't, and, and all of that that's given to them for food. And then on the very end of all of that, of day six, we have the creation of mankind. And we generally are thought of as creatures that live on land. Right? Not all of us, but most of us. And so you have this perfect kind of back and forth, this structure to, to Hebrew poetry that generally is, is a mark of Hebrew poetry. It's not just like free slam whatever with, with no thought behind it in that sense. It's this very organized way of expressing the created order. And what we see in this account is the boundless creativity of God. But in the midst of that creativity, the order of God as well. When we look at the creation narrative, one of the first things we learn about God is that God is a God of creative order. God didn't make the world like some free-loving hippie who just decided to take a canvas and paint. And, you know, sometimes you just like throw it and then you somehow can still sell it for like a million dollars because it's made to be art you just threw stuff at, whatever. That's not how God operates. God makes things with beauty and creativity. He's not a robot but he does it in a meticulous and an organized way. Every single thing God makes and every single way that he makes it is beautiful, new, and intentional. Right? It's going to be important to understand later when we think about ourselves, but that's something we need to take home. God makes everything creatively, beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully, but intentionally. When you read the account and you understand how Hebrew poetry works, you get the sense that God kind of knew what he was doing, right? He wasn't just like, oh, tree. Eh, I don't like that. Eh, let's, let's make it green. That's better. No, like he knew what he was doing. He spoke these things into being in a beautiful way, right? And so that's number one. God is infinitely creative, but meticulously purposeful, intentional, and organized. The second thing that we have to notice is the seeming shortness of this creation narrative. This is one of the most contested aspects of the Christian faith. As we look at this and we say, well, did God really make the world in six literal 24-hour days? And I'll tell you, I have no idea. I don't. 
I tend to lean slightly in the direction of non-literal 24 days. And part of that is for me, I just look at like when the actual expanses were separated so that we would even really know what days and night is and how that all functions. Right? And so there, there seems to me that there would at least be like a, the first couple days where there's not a clear delineation of what a 24-hour period even really is and all that kind of good stuff. And, and, and there's good, faithful biblical scholars that stand on both sides of that camp. And I can genuinely tell you that we probably don't know uh, and I can also tell you that it really doesn't care. It doesn't matter in the end. Right? Because what's, what's the most important thing to understand here? God created out of nothing by speaking. If I went outside and I said, let there be a mountain, and it was like, poof, a mountain, by the end of the day, you would be amazed. You would probably come worship at my feet. Right? I'd have real good job security. Right? If I took a week or a month to make that same mountain, would you be any less impressed with me? No. Right? God made the world out of absolutely nothing. And, and quite frankly, whether it took a day or a week or a thousand years, it, does it really matter or does it really in any way take away from the beauty and the holiness that spills out as God creates? To me, it doesn't. So I think we d debate a lot about the length of time, and I think we really miss the points. The point is that God creates by speaking into existence the world. It's important to remember this, right? The, the, this, is, this is this license and phrasing, the same way our songs today have creative license, so the, the narrative of Genesis 1 can have a creative license, and it might not be 24 hours, but he did create the world, and he created it out of nothing, and he created it by speaking. And that's the third point. God created from nothing. This is unique to any other religion out there, with the exception of Judaism, because they partake of the same creation narrative as we do. If you go to any other faith system out there or any other system of philosophy, whether it's ancient or modern, you're going to find two theories, kind of two camps of theories as to how the world was made. The first is that somehow it was created out of matter, right? If you go into like ancient mythology, you see these like gods that battled each other and, you know, they, from, the, from the remains of it was built the world or something. If you go to modern history, we believe that it's the, the Big Bang that created the world. And so the question that the, the theories of science today can't answer, well, what went bang? Right? I don't care how good the scientific argument gets, what went bang? Something had to be there to cause an explosion. There's nothing and all of a sudden, stuff? No. There had to be something. Maybe, maybe, and now I'm speculating, this isn't, this isn't necessarily biblical, but just maybe, since, he, since Genesis 1 is poetic, one of the ways in which God actually produced the world as he speak is that it just exploded into being at his command. And maybe the theory of the Big Bang actually could perfectly line up with the creation narrative of Scripture, right? Now you're going to go home and go, oh, man. Right? Made me think. Again, speculating. Don't take my word for that. I'm not a scientist. But I do look at the way that God makes things, and I say, you know, he, he could do it however he wanted. I wasn't there when he spoke the world into being. I don't know what it looks like. It could have exploded onto the scene at the command of his voice. And somehow we're able to study and look at that historically through the scientific lens. Perfectly plausible. But he made from nothing. No other faith system or philosophy believes in the creation of their God creating out of complete nothingness. And we think that we can create. You know, well, we can clone a sheep. Yeah, but you need material. Right? 
We all need something to make something else. We're like a toddler playing with Play-Doh. We're just making stuff out of stuff that already was. God just spoke into existence. Right? The, the phrase that we use is ex nihilo, out of nothingness. Right? And so the creation was made by God, who is so powerful that his very word creates. Well, how could his word create? Well, one thing to think about is Jesus is actually called the word. So maybe the word that created was do you see how the Trinity all works together to fashion things into being? But God creates out of nothing. There was zero, and all of a sudden, bam, there was stuff. One of the um, interesting Bible, you call it a translation, it's a paraphrase. There's a translation paraphrase of the Bible called The Word on the Street by Rob Lacey. And it's the most, like, kind of like down-to-earth way of translating the Bible. And, and Genesis 1 in, in Rob Lacey's version of the Bible is, in the beginning, nothing, and then, whop, stuff everywhere. If you want entertainment, go find that book and read Song of Songs. It's wicked interesting stuff. Um, but that, that one was for free. That's a tangent, right? God creates completely, entirely out of nothing. And that is not something that we or anyone else that we've ever known can do. The next thing we have to understand is God's evaluation of the creation as he's making it. Right? There's this beautiful structure of the days, but at the end of each day, or in the middle of each day, as he's creating, he steps back. And he looks at it and he says, it's good. Right? And he doesn't look at it as good in a way of like, you know, you're going to build something and you look at it and you're like, that's, that's okay. That's, that'll do. You know? He looks at it and goes, oh, that is good. <laughs> right? Like he, he beholds it as, as beautiful is the, is the language that we, we miss when we translate it into English. He has this way of, of adoring what he's made. He sees beauty in it. He proclaims it to be good. And he stands in awe of the, the very thing that, that is in front of him that he just made. Right? Kind of the way we stand in awe of a, of a, of a spouse on our wedding day when they, when they just walk down the aisle and we go, whoa, that's good. Holy cow. Right? And so for us, that matters because we are considered a part of that creation. Right? The creation is good. There's so many philosophies in the world today that have a very negative view of the actual creation. Right? In the ancient world, most philosophies were looking to escape the physical reality of the world to some kind of afterlife. This didn't really, this wasn't where it was at. We needed to somehow get beyond this because what really matters is after. Right? We want to transcend away from the physical earth into some kind of heavenly sphere or, or alternate reality or somewhere else away from here. Right? Today, we, in, in, in pure secularism, we think that this world is really all there is. It's all chance and happenstance. And so the world's not really good or bad. It just kind of is, and we just do whatever we want in it, and then we, we die, and we disintegrate into nothing. Right? We come from nothing, we go to nothing. Right? Christianity is unique because it looks at the world itself, and God proclaims that everything about it, that the world as it's created, is good. The physical stuff is good. How do we know this? The end of scripture isn't heaven. Right? When we die, we go to heaven. But what's the end of scripture in Revelation? And behold, the new Jerusalem. I saw it coming out of heaven onto earth. Our final reality is life on earth. Physically, present, 
in bodies, in real bodies, in real places, without sin to stain things and cause the pain and the hurt and the suffering that comes along with it. For the Christian, the world is the good. It's stained right now, and we'll get to that next week, but it's good, ultimately, as created by God, because he makes it and he calls it that. And because the world is good, it incentivizes us to do things like push for morality, justice, and mercy, and goodness. If this world is all there is, what does it matter if we're just or fair or right in this world? We just kind of get ours and get on, right? But if the world is good as it's created with intention and purpose, and everything is the way it is for a reason, then we we ought to be a people that cultivate it and care for it and, and treat it morally well and seek justice in the world. Those things only matter in light of a creation that is pronounced by God to be good. And so we read it and we say each time that it's good. The next thing we learn is mankind is introduced in Genesis 1, 26. And it's a departure from the rest of the creation narrative, right? Everything else follows a pattern. The first day this was made, the second day this was made. God made it, looked back, it was good, evening, morning, second day. Good, evening, morning, third day. And then we get to mankind on day six. And there's a couple key differences. The first is this. The way in which we are made is different. Let us make man in our image. The rest of the created order is good, but it's not made in the image of God. And when I say image, we're not talking about the way he looks, right? It's not if you put all the faces of every human ever to have been together, that's what God looks like. You know, he's, he's half Middle Eastern. Half, no, it's not about looks. It's about nature. It's character. It's about nature and character. We reflect who he is in essence. He made us like him in many regards so that we might be this like mirror image, this foreshadowing of of what God is somehow like. We are created as mankind in his image. Nothing else in the world is made in God's image. Nothing. Not your favorite pet, right? You can love your dogs. I love dogs. But they're not made in the image of God. I don't care how much personality you think they have. They're not made in the image of God. Mankind is only solely made in God's image. The purpose for which we are made is different than any other thing that was made. What does he say? All of the creation that I've made is for you, for food and enjoyment and and use. And you were made to use it, to enjoy it, and to what? Exercise dominion over it. We are created specifically to be in charge of the world, of the rest of all that God has made. We're we're assistant to the regional manager, in some ways. He creates us for a different purpose than the rest of it. We're set apart that way. We're not like a tree in any way. A tree doesn't matter as much as we do because we're made in the image and we're made to have dominion over that tree and those animals and all the things in the world. We're we're meant to rule over it. We're meant to rein it in. We're meant to conquer. We're meant to cultivate. We're meant to sail the seas and explore. It's part of why, as a human culture, we're constantly looking to explore the next thing because we're meant to, to have dominion over it. We are meant to have dominion over space. That's why we keep pushing the boundaries of how far we go, right? Talk about colonizing Mars. Mars is a part of the created order. We're meant to cultivate that. 
part of the creation mandate. And so the way in which we're made is different. The purpose for which we're made is different. And then finally, the result for which we're made is entirely different. The whole world exists for us and our enjoyment and his glory. We exist in order to proclaim glory to him, to ascribe him the glory. You have to understand the creation can reflect the glory of God. Right? You can go and look at the Grand Canyon and go, wow, God is so majestic. But the canyon, the canyon itself can't proclaim the glory of God. That's our role and only our role. Right? If a tree falls in the woods and no one's there, does it make a sound? Right? Science would say, well, yeah. If the creation is glorious and there's no one made in his image capable of beholding it, is it even really glorious? Right? We are made as image bearers of God for the purpose of cultivating the world and the end result, the goal as to why we're here, is to bring glory to him. We're supposed to look at all that he's made, to enjoy it, to revel in it, to find the pleasure in life in this world, and then to give him glory for it. Right? We talked the last couple of weeks about giving, and we talked about how God is primarily a giver. That's literally the point of why you exist as a human being. He makes this beautiful creation, and he has a certain way that it's set up to run because he knows so well how it's supposed to work, and then he puts us in it, and he says, look, here's this thing I made for you. I will be glorified as you enjoy it to its fullest potential. Go do that. And then, and then ascribe that glory. And, and he is glorified in it by giving to us. Right? That's why the Westminster Confession's first catechism question is what? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, I don't know my purpose. I don't know why I'm on this earth. I don't have any talents. Why would I exist? Why did God make me? God must have made a mistake. He shouldn't have made me the way he made me, or he shouldn't have made me at all. It probably would have been a better world if I hadn't been made. God makes everything with purpose. God makes everything with creative and beautiful intention. God doesn't make anything terrible. And so God made you. And your purpose, in case you're wondering what it is, is to glorify him and enjoy the world forever. To be in this world, to partake of it, the way that he calls you to, in the way that he created it, and thereby to bring glory back to him. That is our purpose. And that's where the opening of the chapter 1 of Genesis becomes our origin story. We learn about who we actually are, how we came to be, and why we're here. See, I think most of the time in Genesis, when people read it, they focus on the what and the how. Well, Genesis 1 tells us how the world came to be and that God made it. And that's the main point of the book. I don't think that's the main point of the book or that chapter. I think the main point of Genesis 1 isn't about telling us that God made the world or even how he made the world, but why he made the world and us inside of it. It answers the why question. We exist to glorify him through the consuming of this world and the cultivating it in line with how he calls us to do so, right? That's, that's our purpose. You're made to give God glory. And the more we press into the reality of what he has for us, the more we look at what he commands us to do in Scripture, the more we live into it, not only do we ironically find more joy in doing that as we do it, 
and he promises that we will find joy in it, we end up fulfilling our cultural mandate. That's why you always feel so darn good when you're serving with your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're walking in ways that you're supposed to walk. There's this natural goodness that comes with that. Right? It's because it's what you're made for. It just makes so much sense. Right? We are created to do that. We give glory to God by exercising dominion and enjoyment of the world. We give glory to God by enjoying it the way he intended it. We give glory by recognizing that you are put into this world that he made for a purpose and a reason. And we give glory by understanding how he made it and living in light of that, even when we don't want to. And we give glory to God when we praise him and tell the world and thank him for the creation that we get to enjoy each and every day anew. It's the point of not just this opening chapter, but the entire book of Genesis. Right? What we see as we get into next week is how we take that mandate and instead say, I am going to use the world. I am going to enjoy it. But I'm going to do it on my own terms. Right? We learn how sin entered the world. And, and here's something important to understand. There's two ways that we'll dig into next week as to how sin jacks up this created mandate and this beauty. The first way is our own sin. Through our selfishness and our bad decisions and our rebellion against God and us choosing to, to walk a different path and to use the, the world not how he intended it, but how we want it, we go against the very creation that he set up. And so we're, we're constantly fighting the nature of this, of this place that God has made. Right? The second way is because sin is predominant everywhere, Sin is something that you do, but sin is also something that's done by others to you. And so there are ways in which you experience pain and suffering not in line with how the created order is supposed to work that aren't your fault. There's ways that are your fault and ways that aren't your fault. Right? So people be like, oh, I try so hard to live for God, but no matter what I do, life just beats me down. Yeah, that's because sin comes from two directions, your own heart and the hearts of all the people in the world around you. And it jacks it up. Right? We'll talk about that in detail next week when we look at the fall of man. But for now, let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your holiness that spilled out in creation because you couldn't contain it. Lord, you didn't make the world because you needed it. You didn't make the world because you were lonely. You were perfectly in community with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you made this world out of the abundance of your love and your creativity and your holiness, and for your glory. And so we praise you. We praise you that we are a part of this glorious creation. We praise you that every one of us, no matter how much we think little of ourselves, can acknowledge that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image for his glory and for his purpose. We pray that we might live into that purpose, that we might be a people that live the reality of creation in this world, that bring hope where there's hopelessness, that bring reason where there's a lack of reason, and that we might be a people that cultivate. We pray that as we leave this place this morning and go into our spheres of influence, that we might be shapers and cultivators of the world that you have called us to rule over and to have dominion over. Help us do that. Equip us. Remind us of your truth. And the Lord, provide us grace as we learn and try to figure it all out. We love you. And all his people together said, Amen.